pay you. Yes, I mean you, dear listener. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Waru Desho podcast. We're so happy to have the pleasure of your company today. If you've listened to us before and like our show, you might be wondering how you can support us, since we won't take your money. This podcast will continue to be free, but if you'd like to show your appreciation, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes, as those help our discoverability. If you don't use iTunes, that's fine too. You can follow us and like and share our content on SoundCloud and Twitter. Additionally, we love getting your feedback, positive or negative. Tweet us at Show or email us at waterwaydeshow at gmail.com. Whether or not it gets read on the show, I can assure you, we all read every tweet and email you send us. And once again, dear listener, we thank you so much. Now please, enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Wari Desho's Stream of Thought series here covering Elfin Lead 2.0. Yes, really. It's gone that far now. And with me here today, as always, is my um, very good friend, uh, Elfin Lead hater, not undeservedly mind you, the Subtle Doxer. How dare you? How fucking dare you? I, I do dare. I do fucking dare, my good sir. But come on. At this point, with what's happened in Dying in the Franks episodes, well, it is literally... Well, with certain exceptions, not least of which there's certain characters from the from Elf League that thankfully were not translated over <laughs> wholesale. Thank God for that. Um, but it is so very much like a similar story in terms of its bones and its core ideas and themes. Um, and of course, there's the more aesthetic things, such as the fact that both of the lead female characters have horns of some description and pink hair. I mean, we've made the illusions before on this cast, but with what we find out in today's episode, it's, well, it's all the more obvious now. The comparisons are, you know, much easier to make. But there is a difference, though. And there is, believe it or not, I'm as surprised as you all say this, but the show is actually good again. At least it's good at what the show has been good at before which is that it has done some very strong build-up to future revelations and given us a little bit of info, finally, some morsels, some things we could grip onto and truly talk about. I just want to know, where is Bando? Actually, no, I've decided that Crew Cup Man is the Bando of this you show. Think, oh, you think um, Bad Cop Son is Bando? He is pretty fucking useless. Yeah, exactly, that's why. <laughs> that's why. I, hey, do you reckon he was the one who cleaned the beach for the kids before they went there in episode 7? <laughs> just see him like doing it with a totally blank face as usual like Uh, i I just hope that they like i hope they lean into how like i hope they lean into how expressionless and kind of monotone that he can be about everything and at some point there's a christmas episode and he's just like got a santa beard on and a santa hat and he's just like totally like straight serious like parasites here are your gifts Parasites, come have some fruitcake. 
Here is some stuffing. Total, like, no joy. <laughs> Not breaking character at all. It would be amazing. No. I get the impression that much as the kids will never become adults in this show, at least according to their perspective, he in turn has never been a kid in his life. <laughs> literally or metaphorically. But anyway, let us firstly talk about the people who made this particular episode. Doc, have you got some hot deets for us? I do. Uh, so, this episode was directed by Toshifumi Akai who uh, was episode director on episodes one and three. Now, I believe episode three had another episode director as well. Ah, I see. So basically, like, yes, getting conflicting information in different places, but I I believe that he was an episode director for episode three, and certainly for episode one was Akai. And... uh, Long like the one of the head writers, one of the series composition credits, and main episode writers of the show, Naotaka Hayashi, again series comp, and credited for scripts on episodes two, four, five, six, and eight. Fair enough. So he's sort of mixture of good and bad, but well, you know. That yeah. being said, if yeah. he if he is the series comp lead. Uh, it actually makes sense that he would be handling this particular episode, given it deals mostly with Zero Two and revelations about her. Right. In some ways, it actually makes sense to me, at least, that the other character episodes we've discussed so far, the ones about Zorame, Goro, uh, Kokoro, Mitsu, etc., uh, that have all been handed off to other people who aren't the lead. In some way, it seems to marry up. It would make sense to me. Although, as I've totally. said before, I don't know. I don't. I, I can't pretend to know exactly how anime writing and scripting process goes like sometimes you think to yourself you know maybe be better off if there's a david lynch twin peak scenario where it's just one creative vision all the way through or you know let people have a good dab at it like like in comic books for example there i wouldn't presume for a second to say that it should only ever be one writer doing comics otherwise we get some frank miller shit going on which is bad (laughs) fuck fuck that guy jesus christ but on the other hand, like, you know, many different artists have come to comic books and done different takes on popular characters that have been wildly successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, let's see, Neil Gaiman did uh, revisions on The Shade, for example, uh, turning turn him into more of an anti-hero and a gentleman thief. Uh, Gail Simone's quite famous for the run she's done on the Birds of Prey series and female superheroes in the DC universe. So I'm not against the idea in principle of people, like, you know, being called in to do individual episodes of an anime show, but on the principle that, you know, different people can bring different things to characters. Yeah, I mean, hell, we just covered Devil Ben Crybaby extensively. And oh, yes. And while, while it's not the same thing as stepping in to direct an episode of an ongoing show, it is an example of, you know, established creator coming in to give their take on other established creators' property. Like, just lending a different perspective to to something and having sorry producing excellent results exactly uh, speaking of excellent results it really has to be said like that when this show properly focuses on its direction and its technical aspects it truly shines yeah oh man there's so many little small details in this episode that i really really enjoyed uh direction uh choices uh small edits here and there changes to certain things like the op even if even a little small one how long has it been since we've seen the letterboxing I can't recall. It's been it's been a while. I was glad to see it back and used to to good effect. 
uh, yes. this time. And I think you were going to say that Asami Tachibana's music, mwah, like this episode, oh it was truly special. Yeah, this this might sound like a strange comparison, but if you've ever played Metal Gear Solid 2, there's the music that plays during the Arsenal Gear section at the end. Uh, the very like somber, almost choir-like uh, noise that's going on in the background that gives the whole thing a kind of creepy atmosphere. It mm-hmm. felt very reminiscent of that when the music was playing at certain points, such as when characters are having conversations, but it made everything super chilling. This episode felt ominous. It was saturated with dread. It really did marry up very well, in my opinion, with what was happening in it, which was essentially the beginning of Zero Two's decline, or rather the point when it truly becomes apparent that she's going downhill physically, mentally, and emotionally, and also with the revelations that we get into her past. Yeah, and we that has been sort of hinted at and foreshadowed for so long. It was nice that a step was finally taken in yeah. the progression of the Zero Two character. Yeah. In some ways, I have to say, I, some, I actually feel that sometimes Frank's feels like it's two stories smashed together, which is <laughs> the Zero Two and Hero stuff, and then the whole thing with the Plantation 13 being experimental group. Hmm. Because these two groups, Zero Two and the 13 kids, our heroes, coming together, was a happy accident that happened as far as the plot showed us so far. And I'm sure people will probably chime in, but what if it was planned for her to meet him all along? Ah. (laughs) And uh, you could very well be right. But in some ways, it feels to me like that there have been times when the narrative should really, I think, focus on one or the other. Like, you could probably make a damn good show out of Franks if you cut out... Let's say we make it just Strelizia. You, you single super robot. Hero and Zero Two. Jacks all the other characters and just have it be a 12-episode uh, show a season about them. Or conversely, you can jettison Zero Two out and just make it about what the, the, you know, the kids are learning. And there are times when I think these two things gel together quite well. I mean, bad sitcom stuff as it was... In episode 8, Zero Two interacting with the team, I thought, was a welcome sight to see. Mm-hmm. I quite enjoyed that. And then, of course, there was a stuff between her and Ichigo in episode 5 that was quite welcome as well. Which, by the way, we do get shades of again here. Yeah, um, and her and her at the... them at the beach. Yeah, exactly. Um, they had a, a similar... well, no, it wasn't a similar encounter to this episode. It was much more similar to episode 5. But it, I, I liked that it was different than the beach encounter. Yeah, it had definitely a different tone to it. And I think to speak to your greater point about this episode, or sorry, about the twin stories, I think in this episode, I've one of the reasons I felt so good about it was I think that those two things finally did feel like they were kind of coming together mm-hmm. because we got a lot of information about Zero Two and about kind of how idiosyncratic she is even to her special group i, I mm-hmm. think i think even to her special group that she was with before well we don't know too much about them but yeah i mean it, it just it felt like less like her stuff was happening in kind of the side story or vacuum or whatever and more like okay her differentness it, whether whether or not she was kind of orchestrated to end up with squad 13 or it just happened by chance and they, which is what I seems to be the case, and it worked out, and they stuck with it because I don't think anyone actually expected Hero to be 
the one <laughs> to survive the the uh the curse yeah but like she is so so different that is why dr franks is allowing this to occur mm-hmm. for for the experimentation and it's not and, and it seems like important to the experiment yeah what well, ultimately the goal of that is is still elusive though where there i will say i would still prefer a couple of hints here so what's going on like is frank's working with ape against ape is there a hidden agenda a conspiracy a rebellion i don't know i could i could throw so many darts at you know the wall on this one and land on anything any of those things i just mentioned and they could be valid they could well here's another thing that i really liked about this one and is that it's very clear now that Squad Thirteen has been underinformed on purpose, mm-hmm. and and it's part of the experiment. And I think, for good or and ill, you know, there are pluses and minuses to this. It feels like maybe the show wanted to put us in those shoes as well. Yeah, and that you know, and that's that's really, I guess, one of the only ways you could effectively have a show about this group of uninformed characters is you yeah know, you don't you, the audience can't also be informed or it would no. i don't know maybe be too frustrating or uh it would just be this different thing this is the issue i mentioned previously about the idea of audience proxies so i absolutely get that maybe uninforming or sorry keeping the 13 kids relatively uninformed compared to you know other people about things i mean there is the line that the blonde cypher kid i don't think we get given his name yet so he's just one of you know leader of the uh, the night we weren't we we were told when they were introduced in like episode seven but i swear i just don't remember i don't know um we'll just call him cypher because that's what he is uh by the way <laughs> the whole premise the whole premise of this episode is that they're going back to the garden where they came from so my final fantasy 8 reference has actually borne out more true than i realized just waiting for you know robin williams's sith to turn up and start you know lecturing about defeating the sorceresses hero you've got to fight ultimecia someday what there the the wikipedia has him as nine alpha nine arufa nine alpha all right um we'll go with that then we'll call him alpha nine alpha cypher you know <laughs> shit stir extraordinaire yes 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 what a yeah what a prick what absolute prick <laughs> I mean, that man is stirring the pot. If it, if it turned out that Alpha was running a fake news website, I'd buy it. I would totally buy that he would do that. He'd be out there making shit up left, right, and center. So you don't think he's reliable, necessarily? Well, no, uh, based okay. on the language that he uses later, but we'll discuss that. Very interesting. Later. That's interesting. Um, it also, it's also interesting that he's not human, that none of the nines are human. No. That's extremely interesting. Aha. Uh-huh. So, okay, we'll get to that, but for the moment, the premise is, our team is being taken back to the garden, the place they originally came from, where all the parasites are born. Hey, that's the episode title. So they're going back there for tests. And the opening of the episode is cut between them discussing this as their plantation rolls towards the garden in a heavy snowstorm, which is actually present for the entirety of the episode. And one of the things I like about Franks when it does this is it really does do a decent, if perhaps maybe a little cliche job of using weather to help sell atmosphere. Because yes. characters are very cold to each other in this particular episode, apart from a moment when Ichigo lays on some real heat on Alpha, which I was super impressed by. Mm-hmm. I was like, D-, like people have been sleeping on Ichigo. She's the secret zero. star of this episode, maybe of this whole show. The, absolutely. Like, the shade she throws on him, I was like, damn! 
She I is... know it's cold out there, but you could just turn the heat up normally. She's wow. really good. <laughs> yeah, he, I'm going to yeah. get to a, a part in the notes that is an interesting note about uh, an exchange that she has with Alpha. But but yeah, she's she's badass. She don't play. Ichigo is the seek is the sleeper hit of this show. Also, the, the cold, the cold. Like I wanted to stay cold forever because those fucking coats. <laughs> the coats are good, aren't they? Amazing. I want one so bad. God, they look so cool. And Zero Two got to wear her coat and hat again. Praise the yep. sun. Praise the sun. <laughs> There's no sunshine in this episode. That's true. It's all pretty miserable. That's true. Um, Zero Two, by the way, is seen combing through a library and she says she can't find any picture books. Uh, all of the books that are in there are like um, either German textbooks of some description or one of them that we find later is Royce and Abigail by William Shakespeare. A work of his I'm not familiar with, admittedly, but I know exactly yeah. what it's meant. I know exactly what it's meant to be if it's uh, not a direct title of his. I'm fairly certain that doesn't. In fact, you know what? No, let's use the internet to find out. Royce and Abigail, or whatever. Royce Shakespeare. Let's try that. Two very modern sounding names for a Shakespearean nope. play. Does d- doesn't exist. <laughs> I'm willing to bet you they're pseudonyms for Romeo and Juliet. And then mm. if you apply that to our lead t- two characters, oh boy, mm. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, that's gonna yeah. end well. They did find they did find the golden. Is it is it bow or the or, golden the golden bow? Yeah, the golden bow. Yeah, there's yeah. some. There's a really great blog post uh, about this. Uh, so link in the doobly do. Yes, someone uh, uh, Emily, also known as AJ the Fourth, longtime Annie blogger. Uh, also very knowledgeable about like plants and flower language and and things like that. So this is kind of in her wheelhouse, and so she talks a lot in that post about the significance of the Golden Bough and how it relates to the story and themes of Franks in general and its history in uh, the world of like scientific literature, which I also thought was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's combing the library for picture books, doesn't find any. I hope she doesn't end up reading, you know, the copy of Fifty Shades of Grey that's in the corner. Man, there's no way that thing is bound in that super nice binding that all those books are in. If I saw that, it would just make me angry. (laughs) It would would make me angry as well, but I'm willing to put more money on the prospects of that existing than not. Oh, fuck. Well, let's put it this way, I'm very glad Zero Two at least would never read that, because I don't want her taking hints from that book on how to approach anyone, even Hero. (laughs) Alright, moving away from E.L. James, you know, um, plagiarism (laughs) slash, you know, masturbation projects, there's one thing we need to note, by the way, about the OP. Now, in the previous episode, I threw out a prediction that I didn't want to come true, but I felt like throwing out there because I'm a cynical bastard, which was that... You might recall that Kokoro and Mitsuru are now partnered up in Janista. And I thought to myself, oh, well, they'll drop that next episode because, you know, the continuities of the art, of the wazoo in this one, you know, doesn't matter. Hero's techno cancer scar is irrelevant, so why should I believe? I won't, I won't ever shut up about that. I'm sorry. I won't ever shut up about that because you can't. Right, you've heard about it before. Point being, I threw it out there that that was going to happen, that they'd be back to partners again as if nothing had ever happened. Now, we don't get an explicit in-show confirmation of that, seeing who's piloting what robot, with the exception, of course, of Hero and Zero Two. That's the only cockpit scenes we get. Mm -hmm. But what we do get in the OP, and I'm a sucker for small details like this when they just change things up, is that 
the roll call of all the robots and the partners that pilot them has now changed. And it is Mitsuru and Kokoro piloting Janista, and it's Futoshi and Ikuno piloting Argentia. So they've actually changed it around. Now, okay, maybe this wasn't too complicated a change, because if you're doing a computer, you know, they just take out the animation for the characters sliding in from the right, swap them over. It might not have been too difficult for them to do, all told. But I will at least credit them for taking the time to actually do it. Because it would have then, if they did start piloting, you know, in this new setup, it would have been a bit of a hiccup then. Oh, wait, they're not piloting together anymore. Why are they still in the OP? At least it, at least it's stuck. I mean, that's the real, that's the take. The real yeah. kicker is that it's it stuck. And in light of the focus that they put on this group being experimental in this episode, it does make all the sense in the world that it did stick. That yeah, partner swap. It, welcome to partner swap. Partner swap <laughs> is an experiment brought to you by Doctor Frank. Stunned to see what kind of results it would have on pubescent children. Teamwork, fighting, infighting. Competition, all of the above. Find out on Partner Swap. And now for post-apocalyptic news at ten. Doctor Frank's indicted on sexual harassment charges. <laughs> yes, it would. It would happen. I have to say though, I'm actually a tiny bit disappointed. I'm not going to hold this against the episode itself because it was very much a zero to and hero episode with a little bit here and there about the others. But the way that the characters all react to each other after the part of the swap, specifically Kokoro Futoshi, it mm-hmm. suggests to me that all of the, you know, thrashing out after the facts, apart from, of course, when Futoshi decks meets through something fierce, uh, all that's happened off screen and we're not going to get to see them talking out because Futoshi and Kokoro are on reasonable terms. Well, he's always going to be like, yeah, I mean, I can't ever, I can't really see him being cold to her. Well, yeah, but at the same time, he's also not, you know, weeping openly or anything like that. He's Thank just... God. <laughs> yeah, he's... yeah I... some time yeah. has passed, and he, yeah, he's okay, somewhat. Yeah. But we did get to see them, like, talk this out, which I feel is a bit of a shame, but that, I would argue, is more the fault of the previous episode rather than this one. So I won't hold it against this episode, because this one is, as I say, a Zero Two and Hero-focused episode. S- speaking of Hero, can I say that before the OP, I have some thoughts about his little, sort of, his inner monologue mm-hmm. which seems to be the way we begin episodes now is a character having uh, some inner inner dialogue with themselves so also called a monologue i don't know why i said inner dialogue with themselves that's clunky <laughs> so <laughs> just like the show at times hey there yes that's appropriate i suppose so he says that where i came from doesn't matter uh it's a it's an unimportant to me what really matters is that i live every day to the fullest from now on and embrace embrace the day carpe diem and shit uh and that's the defining feature of being human mm-hmm. now whether or not you want to quibble with that being the defining feature of being human that's you know neither here nor there it's an interesting it's interesting for him to think at least i do wish that and maybe he did and i'm just forgetting because there's been so much mostly dead weight between this episode and like episode five six, mm-hmm. did he has he said this kind of thing before? Because I, I wish that he had. I, I wish that this was kind of a mantra of his that he'd repeated once or twice in other episodes, kind of verbatim, so that it wouldn't feel so kind of um, half-ass is not the right word, but what they're doing is like he's saying this thing. And then immediately the episode is challenging it. 
because the rest of the episode is like running counter to that and challenging his conviction because it seems to be, you know, wanting him to care an awful lot about where he came from and saying like, well, this is actually really, really important to you going forward and everything. And so I I wish it, it didn't feel, it feels a little flimsy that he's like, you know, you know what? Uh, here's a thought that happens to be crossing my head. And then, you know what I mean? And then just so happens that the rest of the show attacks that thought. Like, I wish this yeah. was a kind of a core belief that he had from before so that it would feel uh, weightier. I mean, the show, it feels plenty weighty this episode, but that this kind of abstract challenge in particular to, you know, should human beings care about their pasts very much? Should should we only live looking forward? How important is it that human beings can forget everything and, you know, move on? Like, those kind of big questions, uh, it would just, it would feel, it would feel better. Like, ah, okay, finally, like, the show has been affirming his belief up to now, but now he's getting some real kind of challenge philosophically. Mm-hmm. I would like that. And it, it, again, it could be present, but whether it is or not, it's the show's fault, I think, in this case, that I've forgotten because it's mm. been so long, so yeah, very long. It, it actually, now that you mention it, does feel like, and I suppose it feels strange to be complaining about other episodes where we want to talk about a good one, but I'll just say that, yeah, it, it really does feel in some way like maybe they could have just picked this up immediately after episode six. Like the we That's not to say that the stuff that's not happened before now has been inconsequential. I think that it's actually been a very good thing that we've seen Zero Two and the others allowed to relax, particularly Zero Two, that is, prior to this episode. You know, they've had their downtime and now things are on the up again as far as tension goes. It would be a bit of a bummer for her to come come straight out of episode six and then say, right, we're going to, you know, drug you the fuck up and run some tests on you. And you don't have a say in the matter. Yeah, that would go down real well. That would leave a bit of sour taste. So, anyway, so they arrive at the garden. The garden, by the way, looks a lot like the Windermere uh, castle layout from uh, Macross Delsa, funnily enough, also with the snow. Hmm. It was very, very, you know, it looks very old, like a proper castle, um, you know, buttresses, walls and all that. And the kids all go in and be told, you know, you're all here for tests. This is not a vacation. <laughs> you're banned from going inside the garden proper. You're going to have your medicals and that's about it. And i've got to say right i've got to say i was genuinely taken aback by this moment of insight from hero because i thought you mr rock stupid himself actually had (laughs) this realization because hero after they're all told this bearing in mind that zero two is with them they he basically says no we're just along for the ride we're only here because they need to get zero two here or so he thinks well, yes, but the the bulk of it seems to be the final. But it's, it is, yeah, it's nice that he made the inference. He, yeah, and 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 I think yes, they're there to do the thing with zero two, whatever it is they're going to do. But um, I don't know. It's just sort of funny that like I, I'm seeing everything now, perhaps retroactively through this lens of they're an experimental group, and it doesn't really seem that crazy given how freely they wander about the garden that like they were put there so that they would Hmm. trespass and find out some stuff because i mean that's why they were put on the beach i think we can probably assume that pretty safely 
so that they would yeah do, you know then they're it's at this point you kind of got to know with squad 13 they're gonna they're gonna do some exploring and some some rooting through the drawers you know they went they busted into those rooms they weren't supposed to go into the keep out first floor all that they're they're always uh pushing against boundaries and so i think that you know while again it's important for them to do the zero two tests in the garden they probably could have made it harder for them to get to stay out of it if they really really wanted to yeah I still don't feel particularly happy with the idea that you can use the catch-all excuse of they're an experimental group to wave away a lot of the potential problems of this show. Right. You Sure. Well, this one doesn't seem like a big problem, per se. No, it just seems, no, no. This one not, seems not in per, this case. I'm pretty confident about, at least now, <laughs> in, in my hypothesis. But I do understand what you're saying, that um, yeah. it can be a machete to cut down all weeds and... Uh, that is that never feels good. No, it it would pull more was with me if the whole idea of what this experiment was meant to accomplish came about. I mean, I'm fairly certain to compare and contrast that in Kill the Kill by this point, the you know we had at least hints about nudist beaches' um, purpose in the world. You know what they what their agenda was, what their goals were. We at least had an idea of you know who they were. And they, of course, were the rebelling force against the authority. And I feel it's fairly certain at this point that at some point the kids are going to rebel against, you know, Papa and all the others. Why else spend so much time dwelling on, you know, him as an authority figure that they all revere, if only then not to tear him down? That would be my f- feeling on that. Especially given what they learn this episode um, with how the kids are treated. And, you know, they get a, a startling bit of um, insight into themselves that's actually really reflects with real life, I think. But we'll get to that in a bit. So, one thing I should mention, by the way, is when they do arrive at the garden, um, they mention, of course, that Hero was there as a special specimen. And someone, I think one of them points out, oh, wasn't Mitsuru there too? And Hero turns around and goes, he was? And Mitsuru looks yeah. at him like he's just about to, you know, shank him. Um, so, remember that plot point from previous episode. And this lends more credence, along with something else that we find out later, that I am now fairly confident Hero's memory has been tampered with. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah, I think even last episode, that was the conclusion I drew yeah. when, you know, he's holding the hand of the white lab coated adult. Yep. Talking to Mitsuru and saying like, yeah, we, you're, we're bros. Promises, promises. And then, much, yeah. then they, you know, they're bad. They, they come out of the room and he's like vacant and he's just like, what? So yeah, yeah. I think absolutely. Yes. And the end of the episode is an even more Yes. Oh, it's pretty much textual at this point, I would say. Although, again, I would like for just five seconds for Mitsuru, not necessarily right there and then, but for him just to, like, you know, take Hero's side and say, look, shithead, do you not recall what happened when we were kids? Are you taking the piss out of me of everything you say? And then Hero goes, I, 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 I genuinely don't. Like, and then maybe they could compare notes. I don't know. Maybe yeah. that'll happen. He's maybe so happen, proud. I mean, maybe. He's so proud. He might even think that, like, Hero is intentionally doing this that you know Mm. what i mean like it's but so regarding something you said a moment ago about why like the purpose of the experiment um i I think at least in part and i think this is why nana and uh bad cop son are going along with it i think that it will help them and they want to say that like having this group with freedom and inner competition 
uh, sorry, having a group with a fair amount of freedom that feels it can express itself, that that has a lot of competition within itself, mm-hmm. and, and you can contrast it with what we see of 26. They seem to be operating as a well-oiled machine. I mean, we complained about that in episode six, and they seem to be much more informed and know things. So I feel like, at least in part, the the goal of the experiment is to create a superior combat unit. <laughs> but but the kill count's gone up. I mean, they're, they're because getting because their... of Stilicia. I meant well, I and, this sure, last side. sure. But but we can see. But we can see the others are better too, right? I mean, all the other robots are better, and and you're right. So the facts are what they are. But I just mean, I think at least the surface level goal is this. And if you look at the numbers a certain way, like they're doing on the surface, like that, you can you can make a case that the experiment is proceeding well. Mm-hmm. It depends how you want to view. I mean, we discussed this previous episode. I still think the whole scoring system is an absolute load of bollocks. Although if they made small change to fix it, doesn't matter. Let's talk about this episode instead. I think that Frank, Dr. Franks himself, the groper extraordinaire, Metal Fingers, he might have different aims. Like he might be selling this experiment as, I want to make a unit that'll beat more Klaxosaurs, Papa and friends. But like he might have his own agenda. It's pretty safe to assume he probably does want to want to gain some kind of insider information that he's not mm-hmm. telling people about. Anyway, yes, on to episode 12. <laughs> yes. So, uh, after Meet Sue delivers that little point, and Hero actually fairly astutely figures out that they're only passengers on this little joyride to, you know, the garden, they're being dragged along for no really real reason, because the person who really is here for tests, which were alluded to previously, is Zero Two. Mm-hmm. And we cut to her biting her nails, Nice small details here, such as the fact that there are bite marks on her fingers underneath where she's been gnawing at her, her nails. And on top of that, her nails are actually longer. Uh, another nice detail about this that I've just realized is that because she's wearing a hat, you don't actually see her horns at this point. Ah. But you do later. And, well, <clears throat> I will be, I'm probably not the first person to make this comparison, but I'm going to throw it out there now. Uh, Zero Two is essentially going down the Venom Snake route. You know, at the end of that, uh, when the horn gets massive. <laughs> uh, so, I've not played through Metal Gear Solid, sadly enough. Uh, don't, Metal Gear Solid 5 was alright. But yes, there is a scene <laughs> in which in which Venom Snake, he has like this shard of metal lodged in his head that looks like a horn. And then he <laughs> has to murder a ton of his own men because they're all infected with a disease. He's mercy killing them, essentially. And after that's done, like there's a shot where... He fades into darkness as he's walking through a corridor, and then he comes out of it again. The horn is now massive, and he soaks in blood. So, yeah, essentially, if if at any point they start playing, um, you know, The Man Who Sold the World, that little cover they did, while Zero Two's doing some sort of, like, you know, <laughs> killing spree or something, I'm just going to throw my hands up and say that, you know, all the directors we've named so far, it was Hideo Kojima yes. all along. <laughs> yes. I mean, he does have experience with, you know, robots. I did mention Zoe the Enders previously. Correct. My conspiracy theory holds water. Madness. Absolute madness. Death Stranding is just Darling and the Franks. <laughs> You're right. You are absolutely right. But anyway, um, after that little little detail there where they say, like, no, you're going to do the test now. This is an order. Stop fucking around. Mm. Mystery Boy of Mystery finally returns to the picture. Out of, uh... Yep. 
Iosa Alpha, apparently, as he's called, although uh, Dick Von Weasel is the name <laughs> I would use for him. <laughs> that's that's harsh. Now, now. <laughs> uh, look, right. He is he, he's a troublemaking fairy boy. Absolutely. That's a that is a very polite way of putting it. More polite than I would use. So Dick Von Weasel turns up with his cronies, the other Iota Nines, and starts telling them, Oh, hey, you're all here. Good to see you again. And, you know, I'm glad that you've tamed Zero too. I thought she'd be too much for the squad to handle. That was an interesting, like, whew, I mean, he's just, he's just sh- shots fired over and over, like laying them down. Like, uh, the, the, how did you tame her? I mean, whew. Whew. Yeah, I know. Like, what a prick. Yeah, man. More, there's some more nice direction with this, by the way, because he and his group come over and there's a frame, there's like a shot that frames our heroes on the left and them on the right, almost like linebackers on a football field staring each other down. And yeah. then you've got color contrast. They're still wearing their pretty mm-hmm. swag, you know, black trench coats. The Iota 9s are white, so you've got contrast there, you know. It almost sets them up as opponents, like that. So, uh, just to be clear, so, sorry, for the naming stuff. So, they're just the nines. The nines, um, all right. He's, yeah. he's Alpha and uh, Zero Two is Yoda, nine. But, oh, yeah, you're no, right, they're, yes. just, they're just the nines. So Yeah. Yep, that's right. Uh, well, were there nine of them on screen? This is a important. There were eight, I believe. Okay, so she's, she, then Zero Two is the, the Fallen from Grace, like, former member. I see. Okay. They'd have not replaced her. Could be. So, okay, let's talk about the Nines more in a little more detail. Let's go. They're not human. No, uh, but what I specifically wanted to say was actually more about the con- as a concept, racively. I think it is a bit of a cliche, you could argue, that there's always this secret group, you know, of elite pilots who crowd the I mean, <laughs> I've compared it to Frontier before. Alright, so so yeah, we had Ranker's brother from Frontier, who appeared pretty much out of nowhere in his own souped-up fighter. And, you know, he's got his own agenda with his own group and all that. So, it's not unheard... Brera. Brera Stern, there we go, yes. So... Or as I like to call him, douchebag... Douchebagenheim. <laughs> Douchey McDouche. Um, the third. He's... Yes. It's, he, again, he was under cybernetic control, though. I mean, Baron Von Shithead here, you know, the the blonde kid, he's probably got no excuse of him, and he's just a prick. I mean, he actually strikes me as, like, being the harrowing nui of this actual episode <laughs> of the show, rather, I mean to say. You know, the the one you want to see dead. Mm. Um, by the way, that's well, not the last kill-a-kill comparison I'll make, but that's for right. <laughs> well, he's, you know, his relationship to humans is going to be, like, he's always going to look down on them and enjoy fucking with them. I guess to a degree because they're a different. Uh, I guess they're a different species. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, we don't really know a lot. Perhaps they were no. they used to be humans and they had their genetics altered a bunch, or mm-hmm. maybe they were made like non-human. I don't know. I don't know. But they they feel themselves superior and are treated as such by everyone. So it's no surprise that they are um, condescending as fuck. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the thi- the thing I want to discuss about the concepts of these guys, though, is that it does feel like, you know, that we are going to have down the line a fight between them and our heroes. And yeah, that is a bit pastiche, to be honest. It's a bit played out as a concept. Hmm. I'm not holding against this episode, because of course it hasn't happened yet, but it feels very obvious to me that that's going to happen later down the line. I don't think it will. You don't think they'll fight against each other? I think 
possibly Alpha will have some kind of confrontation, whether or not it's in robots or on foot. But it's gotta be in the no, robots. I'm, I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna say they will not. This is this is the bet I'm making that they will not mm. uh, fight. I just don't think there's long enough in the show to set up another kind of conflict in an interesting there, way. There, would, mean, there would have been had they used that side. <laughs> I know. Well, they've got to, you know, they've got to keep finding Klaxosaurs and possibly take down Papa and the Robo Bishops. Yeah, that's right. Um, maybe, maybe they'll be the mini boss before then, but I just see it. Mm. I don't know. It, I, I can see it, them not doing it, but, but this is totally like, I have no rational basis for this. <laughs> I would hope not. I mean, I would hope it was something a bit more complex than that because it is, as I say, feels a bit played out. That that's going to be like the final conflict of the show, if that's the case. But then again, the only other enemy that we truly have, apart from, you know, the vague idea that the adults are bad, is the <laughs> Klaxosaurs. And the Klaxosaurs don't, well, they're just wild animals, really, to be quite honest. So, eh, whatever. But yes, uh, this is the point where Ichigo starts, you know, talking yeah. smack with him. Steps up, steps to him. Don't yeah. don't talk about Zero Two. She's one of us. Yeah, I mean, you, are, you. She says, "I can see the special forces," which I should note in the subs has got quotation marks around mm-hmm. it, as if to say, like you know, I don't care what fucking title you've got. I'm just going to laugh at it. It's take don't take it joking. Like special forces. Yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, but she has a little, you know, a bit of a slagging match with um, Alpha Nine, and. Mm-hmm. Alpha 9 then kisses her on the hand, and I actually didn't particularly care for this scene at this moment. I'll tell you why. It just felt a bit tonally dissonant with what's been going on. Like, that suddenly Ichigo, you know, wells up red-faced, it's all, like, very cutesy and all that, and she's embarrassed, and... Well, there are kids, again, who don't understand the kissing and such. I'm not disagreeing with her reaction, I'm disagreeing with its placement narratively in this scene, and structurally, because it feels tonally dissonant from the otherwise sense of dread that they've started building up yeah it doesn't it doesn't gel very well it's like now we've gone from this mood to oh it's just com- it's comedic well it is well it's kind of i read it as a little bit more sinister in the context of the whole episode because it really does seem like he's just trying to put them off their game and yeah. he's just kind of doing whatever whatever will do that uh that to each go because he's taken an interest in her yeah, no, I, I get that, but I'm, in that specific moment, I think it could have just been, it could have been cut out and it would just to keep the mood going and not have it veer off in this direction suddenly. <laughs> it's, it's like with the thing with Futoshi last episode, with the way he reacts and like his face going white because he's, you know, he's been told that. It doesn't quite fit with what they're trying to go for. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are comedic moments in this that are actually pretty good. Like, Zorame says, like, you know, sorry, not Zorame, Miku says that, you know, Alpha 9 is quite hot, and out of nowhere, Zorame just pops his head in from out of frame, like, don't you be talking about him like that. (laughs) That made me me chuckle, that did. Like, it was just a very brief thing, but it was very well timed comedically. Ichigo, by the way, delivers an absolute burn here. Like, I mean, this episode is cold, but this is the only real time the heat is let off, because... Alpha 9 says, I would like to join your squad sometime. And she says, sorry, we've only got room in the attic for people like you. And I'm like, damn! Yeah, yeah. And so here's the part I wanted to talk about for just a moment. So it, what he says as she's walking away is, GG, uh, Yamato Nadeshko. And the subs, uh, I, I don't think incorrectly they say that, you know, he's saying that she's so 
uh, proud and dignified. And that's right, but um, Yamato Nadeshko is actually, like, there's an interesting breakdown of the concept on the TV Tropes page, but it is a very specifically Japanese kind of nuanced sort of concept. Like, so Yamato, uh, or Yamato, I'm mispronouncing that, is... How dare you? I know, I know, a white man with a beard mispronouncing mm-hmm. Japanese words on the internet. It's, the, the internet has never seen the like. Baka! <laughs> so Yamato is like uh, kind of an old way of referring to Japan and Japanese people. And uh, Nadeshko is uh, a wildflower found in the Japanese highlands related to the carnation. So uh. it, you know, literally can be... I guess, you know, Japanese wildflower, but specifically as like a kind of a character concept or archetype, it is like a kind of an ideal Japanese woman is, is a way to encapsulate that. Like there it's, it's a person who exemplifies very, like the virtues that from a, a male perspective are key virtues for a woman. I think like, so the TV Tropes page has loyalty, domestic ability, wisdom, maturity, humility. But it also, you know, goes on to rightly say, like, that don't forget the wildflower part of the name, that despite those list of virtues that are actual, uh, the Yamato Nadeshko is a character who has a, a steeliness. There's there's iron underneath the velvet glove, Right. Because if you yeah. fu- if you fuck with the people that Yamato Nadeshko cares about, be it her man or her family, then like she will come after you and she will hurt you. the The one she yeah. cares about, uh, and the and the kind of goals of her mission in life. Like if you mess with those, then you will be feeling it. You will be feeling the iron. And so, it, it, anyway, it's an interesting read. There are other places in TV tropes and more well-informed. I think you could read about Yamato Nadeshko and the history of the concept, but, um, but it is a Japanese character archetype and um, does seem to fit Ichigo from, at least from uh, Alpha's perspective pretty well. And, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, he's, so he's interested in this type of person. <laughs> he sees Ichigo and saw the ideal Japanese woman. <laughs> exactly. So moving on from that, after the group walk away, there's another really nice bit of direction here that I feel like I have to note. The tests start get underway, and Hero is sat on a bench outside a medical room somewhere in this very long corridor. And we get a shot initially of him from a distance. So it's him in the bottom right corner of the frame, and there's a shadow going down at a 45 degree angle across most of this that intersects just below his neckline. Putting him in shadow while the rest of the corridor is in is in light, and then it comes closer to him. And I thought, that's really telling that, like, you know, about the mood that's going, like, he's sink, he's letting this sink in, that things aren't right. He's in darkness. I thought that was a really nice way of accentuating the, this coming moment. So we get a couple of bits here and there of the kids having their tests, injections. Um, Hero then remembers a moment earlier where he <clears throat> met Zero Two in the library, and says, is something going on? She's like, nah, 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 shut up. Nothing, everything's fine. Talk to me, girl. Come on. Yeah. L- let it all out. Even though, as we've, as he's seen, like, you know, he spied, like, the, you know, she's biting nails again. 
and she says, look, just kiss me. Shut up and fucking kiss me, all right? And he kind of sort of acquiesces, although it's obvious from his mannerisms that he doesn't see this as a good idea. And then when she gets close and the fangs come out, well, if he's ever seen a Bela Lugosi film, he knows that's going to end badly <laughs> for him. So he dis- so Zero Two, whoever catches on to this, and just pulls away and leaves him to it. What if he was just, like, offered her his neck and was like, make me immortal? Oh, God. <laughs> what, is this the second time we have to reference, like, Twilight in some fashion or another here? Fucking hell, I mean, we already had E.L. James, you know, like, Xerox piece of shit in this podcast. So let's just leave it that. Good trash, good trash. No, just just <laughs> trash. Let's not even give it the qualifier there. It is just trash. So Goro finds Hero and sits down and says, look, yeah, the tests here, they're all very basic stuff, you know, nothing too drastic. I would hope that at least they took five minutes to test if there was a brain inside Hero's head. Although, to be fair, he did pass it early with his insight, so that's something, you know. Just tap him, see if it's like testing the ripeness of a melon. (laughs) And Hero's like, look, I reckon we should actually go into the garden. Sod what the adults say, we're going in there. Although that being said, he goes in for a reason that's not No, actually. Hero, how are we going to get past the resistance and the intricate security systems? Oh, it's like it's not like, you know, the security's ever been bypassed before in a really silly... Oh, yeah, right. Uh, There's not even one of those fucking gates. <laughs> they no. Just, they just open the door. <laughs> and which, again, I think it, it just is more evidence of, like, this is what they want them to do. I mean, there, uh, there's there been at least half a dozen episodes where they've gone where they're not supposed to go. And it's, yeah. it's it's on purpose, I think we could probably conclude. I've just kind of zoned out at this point. If it becomes something meaningful, like, you know, where it was a plan all along, great, fine, whatever. If it doesn't, then I'm just not going to care about it anymore, to be honest. It, it'll only matter to me if it's relevant, if the revelation is relevant for the characters. Speaking of characters, though, um, Zero Two is out in the open at this point. Oh, and I love this scene. This is a fantastic scene. It's a fantastic, if harrowing, scene because she is resisting at all attempts to have these tests done on her. She actually outright kicks while the guards away, and well, I think he's got seven broken ribs right now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. I can't believe he got up after like she's like lays out a couple of them before she gets tranked. Tranked like an animal. Like, that is that's that the, is that's, oh. that's the way it feels. Yeah, even before it played out completely and the tranquilizer gun had come out, you know, that they just had this air of a cornered beast uh, kind of and the looming inevitable subjugation. Yeah, and not to mention that when she is then actually forced to the ground, she has her hands held behind her back like she's about to be cuffed. Yep. And Nana is is uh, menacing in this scene. Like, yeah. there's, there's some some tone which just says, don't cause any more trouble for me is dark it's just like damn yeah. and like that's what i feel like that's what really did it for me with the scene was nana just kind of steely looking on cold eyes arms crossed as zero two fights and fights and fights and then is slowly subjugated and and she's just back there the whole time like she knows it's gonna happen she's watching it like it 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 really gave the scene like her presence and her line delivery at the end just was a home run. It, it underscored the atmosphere in this hugely significant way. Yeah, this is consistent, by the way, throughout the episode of what it tells us about how Zero Two has been treated. I mean, I made the Alpha Lead comparison before, and I certainly speculated previously that her history is probably one of abuse 
and certainly, you know, subjugation, mistreatment, you name it, whole kit caboodle, uh, the whole package. And this is just one example of that, that she has to be tranquilizing that. Like, her her needs, like, her resistance to these tests. Nana at no point, like, you know, tries to talk her down, tries to tell her it's for her own good. It's just simply, nope, let's just, you know, load up the track darts and plug her full of them, you know, perforate her with them, knock her out. Just stone we'll... cold, don't cause any more trouble for me. Yeah. So after that, the kids decide, okay, let's go to the garden. And they do, and as Doc has rightly pointed out, there is no resistance to this. There's no, you know, stopping them away. There's no, like, hey, where are you guys going? They're just, no, they're just literally wandering. So you can actually just talk to the, you know, talk to the people that work there. And they'll yeah. be like, yes, let me dispense information to you. <laughs> uh, Futoshi bumps into Kokoro right before this, right? Yeah, that's right. Or sorry, the other way around. And they have their little... I'm so happy that they did that. Like they acknowledged it. Yeah. Just just took a moment to to do that and make you think. Well, yes, okay. So we still we still have this in mind. We're gonna do more stuff. And uh, quite frankly, you know, even though I think Kokoro was in the right last episode and don't really bear any ill will toward her, I know a lot of people do. Certainly to Futoshi as well. So everyone was shit. <laughs> this this might have been like just a quick way to sh- show them both in a in a positive light in a very quick manner we have mm-hmm. her being kind of clumsy and then apologizing and him being a lovable goof i haven't forgotten what you did futoshi i'm watching you you bastard that yeah they are actually you know they at least acknowledge it happened says so that so the kids go inside the, the garden without any resistance or anyone trying to stop them. I mean, I assume all the security guards were out on their lunch breaks or something, you know, or maybe there was a strike. Did, did they recently unionize? I don't know. Dr. Franks just said, hey, don't stop them. I'm telling you. No, backhands, you know, backhands. Money under the table. But the kids all see, you know, the classrooms where the new generation is being, you know, nurtured. So we've got, like, you know, them eating, uh, reading, and such. And... Well, I said before, like, the way that this plays out feels very accurate to real life, because I think that, like, if you've ever, well, of course you will probably have, but if you've ever, like, you know, gone back to a place where you grew up, say, your primary school, for example, or your kindergarten, or your elementary, whatever you want to call it, it's interesting as an adult just to see how environments and places look that you might not otherwise remember with a certain amount of objectivity. It gives them a new perspective. It feels like them, you know, growing up themselves a little bit to see how far they've come from the kids who are there now in the similar scenario. But things are not all right in here because as they're looking around, Ikuno says, look, we've got to have a look. You've got to see this, guys. Mm-hmm. And, well, they've got the kids plugged into, you know, all the Oculus Rift devices there. This is the other Oculus Rift development sensor. But they're also injecting them all with, you know, chemicals and drugs to enhance their parasite aptitude. Yellow blood cells. Which don't make any sense. <laughs> How dare you undermine the science? present in this hard science fiction show this is this is absolutely not hard sci-fi the only hardness in this sci-fi is the hardest well, it's the hardest of sci-fi it is granite sci-fi that's a new we're gonna it's a new genre this is granite sci-fi harder than hard oh fuck it's fucking real man because because it's impenetrable and, and you know you can't <laughs> get through to the you know the, the inside of it it's just ah oh, fuck <laughs> yes, it right yes. anyway anyway so we then have uh, employee of the month, most helpful staff member ever, who <laughs> says you shouldn't be here, but I'm going to tell you everything. 
can't fucking delete this one. It's a near <laughs> automata extra, by the way. Yes, it is. Uh, she's <laughs> one of the, you know, uh, the bunker's support staff right here. Oh, fuck. But yes, uh, she walks past with a tray, like, full of, um, you know, these chemicals, these drugs. And so Hero pipes and says, oh, yeah, um, has a girl from Plantation 13 named Naomi come back here? And I was like, yeah, oh, that's God, why. That's why her? he wanted to go in the first place. I feel like it would have been better if we just dropped this whole Naomi thing and just have him go because he wanted to try and find Zero, too. Because the Naomi thing is, again, goes nowhere. We don't even see but her But he's in so caring. He cares about her. Well, I think it's significant that we do. I love the fact that they're like, no, no parasites ever come back once they leave. It just, I think she was, you know, I think she, this is speculation, but it seems like she was disposed of. Silent Green. It would be cool if we found her in the wild and she was like, you know, she totally knew the truth and everything about what was going on. She'd been freed from whatever bullshit. And, you know, if uh, at that point they have a confrontation or like she's kind of antagonistic towards it, it they, they could do some neat things with the character. I have no expectation that she will. But make I don't think. Yeah, they probably <laughs> she will be a footnote much as she is here. And that's the reason why I say that you should, they should just jettison it entirely, because it would have made more sense and gelled a bit more with the whole idea of this episode of Hero trying to, you know, get Zero Two to open up if he actually said that his stated reason for going in and breaking the rules, because don't forget, as much as they don't get any resistance to this, this is them, you know, going against orders. Um, it would have made it better, in my opinion, if his stated reason was to find Zero Two, because he cares about her. But no, instead he cares about the millstone around the neck that we haven't heard of so many episodes and haven't even seen since what, episode 6 when she appeared in the flashback when he yeah. died, even though she wasn't dead, because that makes sense. Uh, but anyway, whatever. Yet, she in turn is not there, so we learn that the parasites don't ever come back, and that's kind of been hinted at before, so that's all well and good. Mm-hmm. Although I did find I did find it funny that this lady, you know, employee of the month here, says, <laughs> oh, you guys should be here. And I'm like, fuck's sake! D- like, do, do you, like, post all the stuff that you've been doing at, at your the garden on your Instagram or your Twitter account after work? <laughs> like oh i gave i gave i gave all these kids you know like injections and like do you like put state secrets out there i i honestly like i can't think of a more incompetent character in a secret place apart from when homer was giving um secrets to the albanian kid in the simpsons about the nuclear <laughs> reactor because that's what it comes across as to me like you oh know not God. meant to be there but you're gonna talk about it anyway just shut the fuck up although again as always, there's that catch-all excuse. Maybe it's all part of the plan. If they ask you any questions, fill them in. <laughs> yes. Uh, but the kids do learn from this that, you know, all the kids who are being raised there, they're, you know, being reared for war, essentially. They're being conscripted, utilized, exploited, and it gives them a fresh perspective. Mm-hmm. Chink- chinks in, you know, the worldview they've got of Papa being all glorious and, you know, then fine for the adults are starting to form. The cracks are starting to form because of this. So after, you know, being evicted from the garden, for, with no real consequences, by the way, but again, catch-all excuse, get out of jail free card, you know. Uh, this actually then does lead to um, Hero's own mini monologue. They have, like, brief discussion about where they came from, where Naomi go, etc. But this is the point where he does start thinking to himself, Wait, I realized that I was never going to become an adult. And I believe this is something you wanted to elaborate on. Yeah. Uh, how did he come to that realization? 
I don't really I don't really understand it. Yeah, it makes it seem like he's always known, but well, yes, yeah, so there's that, but it also makes it seem like the premise is some kids from our group in the garden disappeared. Therefore, I realized we would never become adults. Yeah. How does that how does that follow logically? <laughs> I mean, they could have just gone to a different plantation. You you just generally yeah. do not know. Could be any number of reasons. You disappeared from the garden. I mean, like it just—it's yeah. I don't. Uh, I didn't really understand. I mean, so yes, he understands that. We understand that. I think, by and large, as an audience, but I don't really see how he came to that conclusion. Who knows? Who knows? They've had this laid on to them before when you know um, the, the cookie cut kids from twenty six told them you know like well what's an adult like, like uh, they don't know do they? Uh, uh, but yeah, Hero starts actually having flashbacks now, remembering that he's seen this location before. Uh, we as the audience have seen this location as well, specifically in parts of the opening and also uh, in episode six, when we get some images of Zero Two's past. Mm-hmm. And well, as I've said before, credence to the idea that someone's fucked with Hero's memory, which would explain a lot of things about his mental state, actually, comes to think of it. <laughs> I mean, God, I mean, wouldn't that be a thing? Like, you know, if he got his memory back and suddenly became a fully functioning, you know, rational individual <laughs> who actually could think straight and not be a dimwit uh... half the time? That'd be funny, that. But anyway, uh, the kids do get chewed out by Nana uh, in a nice mm-hmm. scene where we don't actually hear that, but we get to see it from a distance, so we can infer that. It's not necessary that, you know, we hear the whole thing. So nice compression of time there. Isn't, isn't there a moment when Kokoro stops and says, like, where did we come from? And then yeah, Miku, they... Miku is like, oh, come on, you know, Papa made us, everybody knows that. And for the first time, someone voices this doubt that that is the case. And yeah, they don't really know. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't bring you up because it's only minor. So um, mm-hmm. so Ichigo, as the leader, is the one who gets chewed out the most and gets held behind a little bit as the others leave. But so now that you know, could read of the riot acts. And <laughs> as she walks away... Everyone's, you know, favorite Baron Von Weasel turns up again to stir the pot to, you know, Hello. start shit, shit stirring. And the music kicks in in such a nice way here, like, to make this conversation feel threatening. Ichigo mm-hmm. says, no, piss off, go best with someone else, I don't care. And he then says, okay, let me tell you about what Zero Two is really like. And we don't hear this conversation just yet. It cuts away while he's talking, but there's no audio with it, so we're left just to wonder after the fact what he did tell Ichigo. And at this point, she hasn't even looked at him, I think, right? No. There's she. She's, like, talking to him without even deigning to look upon him. No, she doesn't um, look at him, stand at him straight on. She's standing sideways, mm-hmm. so she's just... Which is a sign, you know, of not wanting to, you know, cooperate or be on even footing with someone. She just generally doesn't like him, and I'm like, girl, you got it. I don't like him either. Hope that little pipsweet gets flicked in the nose by Strelizia's finger at some point. Ding! That'd be funny. The forehead flick. Yeah, the the forehead <laughs> flick. The, the, the Yasmin <laughs> The Otterman, yes. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. So we don't hear this conversation, but we do get to hear it later. I will state ahead of time, though, that I am of the opinion that Alpha here is chatting shit, as we call it in the UK. I mean, I'm generally skeptical of a lot of things that sometimes characters say in this show, because I like the whole rumor, you know, about Zero Two killing people, etc. And some of that has borne true in the end, but a lot of it just feels like rumor-mongering nonsense, and the language he uses in particular is quite telling, in my opinion. 
But before that, speaking of Zero Two, I made a prediction and I was right because she's looking at the mirror that Hero gave her. Right. And it cra- and it cracks under the f- strain of her holding it. And, well, she sees a reflection in the crap mirror. She's fracturing mentally. You've all, of course, probably seen this before in a ton of movies and films and such. I actually don't mind it, though. Like, just because something is cliche doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. And this is not the only mirror she breaks in this episode, by the way. So that's... It's not like, you know, it was done purely for artistic effects. She's genuinely wrecking them. Because she can't bear to look at herself anymore. Yeah, and it's a a quick scene. And they, you know, it it was shot well. Good music. It added to the tension. Yeah, definitely. And she's still, of course, biting her nails and gnawing on her fingers. So, at this point, however, because, you know, we've got to have some action in this action show, uh, we get right. some gazelle claxosaurs turn up. These little, like, you know, leaping Bambi pieces of shit. The, the moho class. I thought they looked really cool. I liked them a lot. They, they were good, actually, yeah. I really liked them. Before they get in the robot, though, it was when Hero notices that her horns are bigger. Yes. And, you know, and she just says... Let's go kill a lot of Klaxosaurus again. Yeah. Some really nice editing with this, by the way. Like, mm-hmm. Shark cuts over the music. Like, they're going into battle, but there's no, like, a high-tempo action music leading into this. It's still grim, miserable, somber atmosphere-building music with nice cuts and edits. Um, by the way, uh, Nana and uh, Crew Cut Man, uh, Hatchie, say, No Klaxosaurus have ever been sighted this area. Why are they here now? And I have a theory on that hmm. that I'll get to in a bit. When we when we get the full conversation uh, that Alpha gives to each go, and we discuss that, but mm-hmm. I have a theory. I have a theory on that. Yeah, uh, you are quite right though in that Hero does note that he- Zero Two's horns have grown bigger, but she's like, doesn't matter. Let's just go out there and start killing. And oh boy, does she go on a fucking killing spree! This, like we saw in the previous episode, a nice setup on this, by the way, that the Franks ladies. The pistols can exert a certain amount of control over the Franks, um, as opposed to the guys doing all the piloting. And so she just cuts off from the group to fight these Klaxosaurs and starts killing them en masse. Like, she's going absolutely berserk. And there are times in this uh, battle when Strelizia's face, which is Zero Two's, like, she's got, like, the real evil eyes and the, and the sneering grin. It looks a lot like Kyrian Ragu's face from uh, Kill the Kill whenever she was going through one of her psycho moments. Hmm. That's what it reminded me of, and I, I was genuinely chilling, like... Hero actually has to restrain her at some point. And yep. the funny thing is, what he does when he restrains her, he says, no, let me, let's work together on this, is he actually manages to triple kill three of the Klaxosaurs with Strelizia's spear. A kebab. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, Dolly was that badass, but I appreciated how it showed that, you know, if they worked together, he would actually help Zero Two of her goal a lot quicker. Because she's just going full berserker rage. She's not thinking about the killing or being elegant about it. Like, Strelizia, in theory, could mow these things down in droves because of how powerful it is. But she's actually getting hiss at times. Yeah, she's poor strategic, or sorry, tactical uh, fighting. Because there's a, a group of them that can, you know, they over time, they'd probably, they would overwhelm it. Theoretically, if there were enough of them. She's just seen the red mist. That's why she's not mm-hmm. thinking about it. She just wants to kill them. She's just gone full berserker rage, like, and feral is the word I would use for it, much as she was in episode six. Yeah, yeah. I think this is my favorite fight scene in the whole series so far. Wow. Just because I thought the choreography was good. I really liked uh, the robot designs, you know, the the Moho class, Klaxosaurs. And then, yeah, the choreography, like it, kind of the push and pull, the battle for supremacy between Hero and uh, Zero Two at times. 
the robot, you know, kind of you can see a lot of strain and the movements and pulling back. And I think the main, like all that was really cool visually, but the main thing that made it so great for me was that there were really stakes. And mm-hmm. it, I didn't, you know, ever think that they were going to die, not those lethal kind of stakes, but you just, the, everything about this episode had been building dread. We've seen so many times, Zero Two in the cockpit, something crazy happened, like you just don't know what. And that was the thing, is she's she's pushing it so hard. She's saying things she's never said before. She's uh, the robots making these expressions that's never made before. Yeah, shut up, you're my fodder. I mean, that happens later, but that is woof, woof. But like, uh, just it felt that sense of of anxiety that I had. What is going to happen? Something very bad could happen to these two kids here. It was real, and and that's just not been present in the fight for a long, long time. Yeah, I mean, they won the fight easily, but they certainly lost something. It was a hollow victory, killing those Klaxosaurs. Zero Two thinks killing them, by the way, will make her human, and... Yeah, I think that she says right at the end of this first fight scene. Yeah. Now, I personally don't think that's going to be the case. No. But I don't I don't think that it's a bad thing the show's risked her to feel that way. She's desperate for something, anything, to, you know, make her feel more human, and... If you think if you think that she is a Klaxosaur or a Klaxosaur human hybrid, then well, fighting against them logically does make it you know seem like that she is more human than Klaxosaur. She's fighting against a race that she is technically part of. Well, think about what we're yes, we're shown at the end of the episode that she is one of those. She's a quote monster in disguise, and so <laughs> it is entirely I think within the realms of possibility that this is just an idea. That Papa and friends have planted in her head. Wouldn't surprise me in the slices. To get the most out of her. While she's still got a, it. As a fighting specimen, yeah. yeah, Exactly, exactly. So, after the fight is over, um, we cut to what looks like the schoolhouse, and then Hero is now walking through the snow. He doesn't have his coat on, by the way, which I found a bit strange. It's only be freezing <laughs> set, but... Well, that's minor. Um, he's following Zero Two's footprints, which, by the way, small but nice details, flex of blood. Yep. Red blood. Red blood, yeah. I was like, oh, oh dear. This scene is, was fantastic. The next the next two scenes are really good. Yeah, this scene was awful in a very compelling narration. Like, I did enjoy watching it so much, but I enjoyed what they were doing with it and how they conveyed it. And there's just some really nice directional choices with this as well. Uh, as well as thematic callbacks as well. Because Hero finds her at the lake. Uh I think this is actually now back in Plantation 13, I believe. I don't think this is in the garden proper. So this mm. is the same lake where they first met. And she's just sat at the, at the lakeside. There's a really, really nice editing and direction moment here where as he approaches her, we see her in the distance just sat down holding her knees. And then it cuts to a close-up shot of her in the foreground in the bottom corner with her horns like mostly taking up like half of the frame to remind you, the audience, that that is the change she's going through. It brings them to focus and draws your attention to them. And I thought that was really nifty. It has to be said, when Franks really does think about it and puts these little details in, it's actually a wonder to behold as a show. Small things that help texture moments and remind you, you know, signposting. It's not completely on the nose. It's just there very briefly. And I really appreciate these bits when they do it. I mean, you then get like, you know, little looks to her hands and the fact that they're gnawed up and their nails are longer. So... And the letterboxing... Oh, the letterbox, yeah. And that's that's another nice touch. And yeah. uh, 
But I just, I can't help, like, I really love scenes in anime when two characters are arguing with each other, yelling at each other. Like, I find it really, the word you use is compelling, compelling to watch. Yeah. The, so they have a conversation which goes downhill pretty quickly, as you might expect. Hero's like, you know, why why do you need to kill all the Klaxosaurs? It doesn't matter. And she's like, I want to be human. He's like, it doesn't matter what human is. Like, I, I don't care. I like you for what you are. In fact, I think he says, I love yeah, you. Yeah, he what confesses you are. to her. Yeah, he, yeah. he says, I, I love you. Now, I don't think that he necessarily does actually love her in the way that we know, but certainly I think that he's saying what I think he thinks she needs to hear. He's actually being empathetic, would you believe? Yeah, I mean, he's he feels something for her. And I mean, yeah. that's, yeah. And he said he learned this from watching Goro and Ichigo. So, you know, he's, I exactly. guess, like you said, just reaching for something that will reach her. And, but, but it's the, you know, she's totally unmoved by it, which was yeah. like a, like, I was thinking, okay, this is going to snap her out of it. This words, I love you. And she's just like, so nah. unaffected and pushes him away. Whew. Yeah. The letterboxing here, by the way, is only used really when it's, either zero two or hero looking each other straight in the eyes from their perspective so you mm. see them up close and it again really well really conveys the mood and attention of the conversation that they're having but as doc has rightly pointed out zero two is having none of it and she pushes him to the ground and says oh okay let's is this, let me is show this you- what you feel <laughs> you see yeah. you're feeling something like uh i think she says let me show you what happens after kissing Happens after kiss again. She, you know, starts taking her coat off, uh, reveals her undergarments, and she starts to kiss him. And he turns her over and says, "No, this is not right." Like, and there's something about the frame of her lying on the ground, you know, with heart like quarter naked, with her face just turned slightly to the side, mm. looking him in the eye, hair so slayed out. It looks like a sign of defeat, like yeah. she's resigned to it. And I have a couple of things I want to say about this now. To some extent, you can make arguments whether or not, you know, sex is a truly intimate act, not like if it, how much meaning you want to put on it. Like, you know, does it make you human? Like, is it a thing that people do naturally? I don't know. You can argue it one way or the other. And for me, I think that, you know, it can be a very intimate thing. And maybe Zero Two was doing that because she wanted to have an intimate moment with someone before she goes full Klaxosaur or goes back to the way she was. Possibly. That's one reading that I would take Maybe, from it. but yeah, I don't... I would... I would go for another reading that I think you're about the, to the, say. Yeah, the other reading and the way that she's laid out like this is that this is not... Well, I mean, she obviously knows what sex is. That's pretty obvious at this point. But I get the feeling that she has had many sexual encounters prior to this, probably with her partners, I would say, who she's piloted with. Or possibly not even with her partners, who could say? But the way she's played out like this, like she just literally wants him to, you know, use her as a piece of meat. I mean, I think she it, says, go ahead and get it all out. Like, yeah. like... It looks like, yeah, she's like, well, this has happened before, and this is what people wanted, so yeah, you go, you go ahead and get it over with and get what you want so we can get back to doing what I want, which is killing motherfucking Klaxosaurus. Yeah. I, I, this was not, this is, none of this was conveyed, like all these inferences I've made were not conveyed for any dialogue, just from that one frame. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen this character look so more look more vulnerable. I mean, you can make yes. you know, comparisons like with episode six, how she was then. But she just, it was heartbreaking to see, like, I, this is the Elf and Lead comparison. I mean, I, again, as I've stayed many times before, I think Elf and Lead is junk. I think it's crap. 
But I think that the bare bones of its story of someone who has been abused and manipulated both from birth, like probably before she was even conceived, she's been, you know, bred with Klaxosaur DNA. It's been mixed into her genes. So she's already been betrayed before she was even born and then utilized the way she has been. Like, it's the idea behind that, you know, whether she, you know, it's a Klaxosaur human hybrid or a Diclodius. I think has genuine merit as a story arc, as a concept for a show or a character even. It just depends on how you execute it. Now, Elfin Lee did it really badly. Really, really badly. <laughs> Frank's is not perfect by any means as in how it handles this story concept, but it's a hell of a lot better than Elfin Lee was for certain. And part of that I get is just because of how this is executed. And that frame, as I say, conveys so much emotion, so much anger, and so much abuse and how she's been treated in the past to me that i i was felt heartbroken i felt twinge i actually felt genuinely taken aback by it vulnerable is a good word to use i mean she yeah we've never seen the character look more vulnerable and it, yeah i mean i can't i can't say any anything better than what you said it was it was very very sad to see and yeah that's it <laughs> that's it so However, they kind of sort of ruin this afterwards. Well, and I say that they don't, but what follows afterwards is a bit goofy. And it's my favorite, one of my favorite things about the show is just all the pointless graphs and minutia that they throw out that don't make any <laughs> sense if you look at them. So each goes walking down a corridor and because, you know, again, the security and the general, like, you know, hush-hush nature of this place is shit. Uh, Nana and Hachi are having a conversation in which the door is not closed. It's not being held privately, you know. I mean, Jesus Christ, I'm almost surprised they weren't discussing what is going on in here out around a water cooler. It really wouldn't have surprised me if they were doing it there out in the open or possibly even in the pub. So it turns out that Zero Two is undergoing what's called sorification. What a great, great word. <laughs> Easy enough inference to make. She's turning more and more into Klaxosaur. That side of her is coming out. Now... What happens, though, is that we get to see a couple of graphs. It turns out that Hero is undergoing it as well by the looks of things. His contact with her is causing that to happen to him. Yeah. Maybe the techno-cancer was sorification previously. I don't know. Well, they, the way that um, Bad Copson talks about it is that he's at risk for it happening. In the same way for uh, Alpha, I think he says, yeah. if they continue to pilot, and he's at risk. So it makes it sound like he's still human now, that he, you know... Uh, and at the end of the episode, when he kind of gets his memory back to some degree, that is when Nana says sorification has begun. It's unclear at that point whether she's talking about Zero Two or Hero, yeah, or, or if the if the memory coming back is also the sorification, or if it's just a coincidence. It's all unclear, but but I I think mm. as he's still human, but um. So he's not undergone yet, but like the risk is very, very high. Yeah. Well, this I'm actually looking at the frame now of the graph they pull up, and there's a couple of funny things I want to pause. Uh, the the co like this is just bad English, but <laughs> it says Dino size progress status for both of them. Amazing, amazing. That's hilarious, but it's also wrong because they're Klaxosaurs, not dinosaurs. Like, if you want to, you know, make up your own etymology for words, you might want to be consistent. It should be called Klaxosize. That's so minor, it shouldn't even matter. But Did I just you just found say Klaxosize? That's what it should have been, yeah. That's literally what it should have been. Everybody, like, put your arms up and let's Klaxosize. Leg day, people. Leg day. <laughs> You're doing it. You're becoming a mighty Klaxosaur. 
Oh God. Three. Feel the burn and rest. Ah oh, God. But um, the the graph shows like diagrams in both that are like red and blue. Uh, the blue being the Klaxosaur bit, the red being the human bit. Zero two is mostly blue. A uh, hero is blue on the inside. Ooh. So it's happening. He is turning <laughs> just, into a dinosaur, just like Israel inside blue. Oh, hollow. I was going to say, like, no, the, like you open him up and there's nothing inside. It's just mothballs. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so Ichigo overhears this, and this now actually cuts back to the conversation that she. Well, actually, no, it doesn't. Sorry, I'm getting a bit out of order here. Uh, there's a brief insert of um, Zero Two wrecking up the shower room, uh, destroying the mirrors. Uh, we see again her nails are growing. She's shivering in the shower. Don't reflect yeah. me. Um, I will. The, what I was a, a, th- a point I forgot to bring up earlier when you were talking about the scene with her and Hiro in the snow is that uh, I think this is all happening at such an accelerated pace now, and she is there's so much desperation. I think that's why maybe she's saying things and acting in these ways that she's never done before. Mm-hmm. She's very desperate. And you really get that sense um, based on that scene with her in the snow. Uh, I'll just, you know, saying, okay, hero, do whatever you want to do here and, and let's get back to it. And then this scene also in a different kind of way emphasizes how desperate she is when she, you know, bloodies herself, destroying the mirrors. And Ichigo mm-hmm. is there looking on. And unlike the scene with uh she and zero two at the beach where they have kind of a more playful uh i guess bullying type confrontation like each goes just straight up scared <laughs> this is pretty much a repeat of the episode five scene between the two of them yep. just a different context yeah but yeah zero zero two smashing the mirrors up she she can't bear to look at herself and man i I feel so sorry for I feel so bad for like that's the thing though that's why this episode works because you feel something you care yes. like there have been times before where I could not give less of a crap about what's happening with the characters, or I feel it didn't work because it didn't properly handle it, or at least satisfyingly handle it. Like I complained before about how Kokoro doesn't have some sort of debriefing with Futoshi, or Zorame not hammering out his findings with Miku, like talking like real adults are. And okay, to some extent that doesn't really happen here, but at least an attempt is made by Hero to draw that out of her. She's just not ready for it. She just can't do it. But after that scene, we now cut to the actual conversation I mentioned earlier between uh, Ichigo and Alpha, and we learn a couple of things. Uh, specifically, he says she's the key to saving the world. Uh, but also, he says, and this is his language here, that she puts a curse on people. Right. And that language right there, to me, was the, the big alarm bell that he's hmm. chatting out of his ass because it makes it sound like magic. Yeah. Which yeah. I don't believe for a moment is the case. I think he's shit stirring the pot here. It's hard. It's hard to explain what we see in in some ways, though. Well, I think that a lot of that is just you know psychic kind of you know ah uh, like new typery. Yes, it's it's the connect. It's the connection in the Franks where this stuff happens. Although that didn't happen in episode six, to be fair. Like he, mm-hmm. here, it wasn't connect. Look, all right, it's not consistent. I get that, but I think that's the idea behind it that they are in some way connected mentally mm-hmm. and emotionally. He says it. I found this an interesting factoid and we'll see how reliable he is. I mean, I, I am inclined to believe him about this. He says that she's discarded a hundred stamens, even since he's known her, which is, you know, it, it says like, okay, they haven't been together since she's been piloting a Franks. There was a time before that, before she was a nine, I guess. And 
you know, even when they were together, there were more than a hundred pilots she went through. I mean, that's, um, that is a pretty goddamn dramatic rate of disposal. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if like that explains a lot of her attitude. Like, you know, that if people are just going to die when she parts them, then they're all disposable anyway. They all know what they signed up for. It, it does certainly explain in part how she came to be the way she is along with all the other things we've inferred so far. Yeah. Her, her, uh, belief in the inevitability of the death of those around her. Yeah. So, the saving the world thing. This is something mm. that's been discussed before about getting Zero Two to the Grand Crevasse, whatever that Ah, really the happens. Grand Crevasse. The you-know-where, yeah. right? Like, this is... In in the beginning, They this is another, like, clear signpost to me of how the group is intentionally under-informed. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know... Uh, the nines uh, alphas like are, are you going to this place and they're like what are you talking about we don't know what you mean it's like well don't you understand where you're going or why you're coming through here nope mm-hmm. it's it, with the kind of implication that all squads usually understand what they're about and what they're doing yeah pretty much so the whole saving the world thing i have a theory this is just a theory, mind you, but note before that the the Klaxosaurs attacked the garden, even though they've never been there before. Mm-hmm. I, I I think self like why have the Klaxosaurs, generally speaking, been attacking the plantation, uh, particularly thirteen in such you know numbers or with the classes that they have? I have a theory. If you've ever played StarCraft, you might be familiar with the character of Sarah Kerrigan, uh, who became the the Queen of Blades, took control of the Zerg Swarm. I think that the plan that they're going to go with is to try and get Zero Two to somehow exert some sort of control over the Klaxosaurs, presumably at the Grand Crevasse where that's like you their know, hive mind. That's a really fucking good theory. That is my guess. That's why they That's why they would have done it to her in the first place. I mean, why turn her into a Klaxosaur or put Klaxosaur DNA in her in the first place otherwise? Yeah. I th- and I think that, that you know they want her to go through that process to become more Klaxosaur-like in order to exert that control. And it probably explains why the Klaxosaurs were drawn to the garden, because they sensed her DNA somehow. Pack mentality? Maybe? I don't know. I'm throwing it out there. It would make sense for why they want to get her there, because otherwise, if it was just the case they need to blow up something in the Grand Crevasse, they could do that any number of ways. They wouldn't need Strelizia specifically to do that, although it would help. Mm-hmm. I would say that they probably are trying to gamble getting her so... Klaxosaurified, if that's even a fucking term, as to, you know, but still human enough to be able to control the Klaxosaurs and put ends them once and for all, you know, like, shut them down, send them into the ocean, whatever. At the cost of her humanity and dignity, though, of course, much as it happened well, with Kerrigan. It's 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 for the fatherland. It's for Papa. The Papa land. Yeah. <laughs> it's, for the, right. it's, for the Papa, it's for the Papa Johns right there. That's you know? right. It's for this piece of franchise. You will exactly. sacrifice yourself. Exactly. So... Yes, there is another battle with Klaxosaurs after this, in which Zero Two again goes completely berserk. Uh, I think she outright shoves the t- uh, <laughs> Adelphinium yep. and Argentinia aside. Yeah, pretty much goes feral in Strelizia. Uh huh. Got the the teeth of Strelizia, and she's at this point screaming about becoming human, not not hiding that information anymore. And yeah, just stabbing a corpse of a Klaxosaur over and over. Yeah, pretty much. Ugh, this is the more heartbreaking imagery. Like, it's tough, man, if you like Zero Two. This episode's a tough one. Yeah. In the cockpit, a hero has... I would call it a vision, but this vision is very much trying to kill him. It's more of an apparition in that her spirit comes out and starts actually strangling him. 
Yeah, and in the most Evangelion moment ever, when they cut back to yeah, inside of HQ, like the the alerts are popping up and the the emergency signs and uh, Nana playing Misato terribly. She's a terrible Misato insert. Or, yeah, that's, uh, that's Misato right. uh, analog, I mean. And she's like, oh no, the sorification has begun. Uh, that was like the most Ava moment, like uh, for me, just in terms of uh, the imagery being basically the same thing <laughs> not surprising given the history of trigger although yeah. i do admit it would have been funnier if she was just saying that while supping out of an ape branded mug that's one of the little details i love from ava by the way that they the were nerve branded yeah. cups and shit that was great um but as this is happening when heroes you know getting his you know um you remember Roscoe- like i didn't realize that also Roscoe's fixation would be a thing in you know this but like you know strangling him to get him eye, i suppose i don't know but uh he starts seeing more of Zero Two's memories. And there's a couple of things here about, you know, bodies being torn up. Um, there's a book. And I forgot to mention as well, actually, there's a really interesting line of dialogue that she throws, says, like, I want to be with my original darling again, or something like Exactly. That. Well, and she, yeah. So she's like, give me all of your life. Give it to me yeah. now. Like, die like the fodder you are. Just straight up, like, I mean, that... That hurt me, even though I don't give much of a shit about Hero. It's just like, I don't know. I'm torn on how she really feels about Hero. I mean, because clearly she's super desperate right now and undergoing a lot of changes physically and chemically. It's going to affect her emotional state like like it would affect any person's. But like, yeah, I, I mean, just clearly, yeah, she has this her own goal revealed here where she says she wa- does she say that she wants him to die so that she can meet her darling from back then? Or does she is she just saying, give me your life so that I can kill Klaxosaur so I can meet my darling from back then? Could, could, could be either, to be honest. You could read either way. Um, but what's interesting about this is I... Now, we learn a little bit later with the memories that flood into Hero's head from Zero Two that, yes... The Elfin Lead references are more apt than you might realize because they apparently knew each other as kids. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. Zero Two was also full on, you know, devil, Klaxosaur looking. Yeah, so I talked about this early in the episode, but like now that I'm getting another look at the frame, maybe there, maybe she, I mean, I think I was fooled by like the sort of suit she appears to be wearing under her her black kind of cloak or whatever. Like she that's white but her skin appears to be all red and her then, skin you know, is all red yeah she's got the horns that are big and red and and looking at looking at the the shots again i was confident before that they they caught a baby klaxosaur or something that happened to be friendly <laughs> to humans and then and that they were humanizing it but like it's the, the, t- what the land the land before time <laughs> yes exactly oh god that that would be incredible but but now I look at it and I'm. It's unclear whether or not she's a human. They're claxosauring or a claxosaur. They're humaning. Yeah, it's probably the former. I would say start human, then throw some claxosaur in. You know the pot, probably. stir it a little bit, add yeah. a dash of oregano, a bit of spice. You know, <laughs> all that bit of pink, pink food coloring. Definitely want to throw a lot of that in. You know, for the you know for the selling point for the show. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> How dare you? Uh, so yes, it turns out they knew each other as kids, and this is more credence to the theory that Heroes had his head fucked with. It would explain a lot about him, that's for sure. And on top of that, because she mentioned that, you know, I want to meet my darling from back then. Now, 
There are two ways this can play out. Either her darling is Hero from back then, and she similarly doesn't remember because her head's also been screwed with, which wouldn't surprise me. Or the thing that I would personally like to see, uh, if it goes with the other, that's fine, but I think this would be better, is if her darling from back then was someone else, probably her first partner, someone who genuinely cared about her and treated her properly. And, well, imagine then, you know, if they pilot three times, she had no idea that it would kill this original darling of hers, and it did, and what that would do to her. That would certainly explain a lot of her attitude, you know, she can't get close to people because you'll just kill them. She can't help it. Hmm. It's just a part of it. Now she has a person who she can't technically kill, but she's just like, you know, trying to drive him back almost. In fact, so part of me would think that maybe her actions in wanting to off him are because she can't bear to be close to him or like she just wants to push him away as she changes. I don't know. It's hard to say. But yes, uh, Zero Two is in a bad way. And the episode does not end with her, you know, suddenly coming out of this little, you know, kill frenzy. She's still very much got her hands around Hero's throat and she's pressing yeah. her to fucking take his life. But that's where it ends. That's the end of the episode. Cliffhanger for the season. For episode 13. Uh, the un- Well, is definitely the unlucky one here. <laughs> now, before we actually give our ratings for this episode, there is something that I do want to bring up, though, that I think might be problematic for Franks. Hmm. Franks problematic? Well, yes, but in the context specifically of Zero Two and Hero's relationship. Now, cast your mind back to the OP. There was a, t- a curious cat answer that H. Bomber guy, uh, or Harris Bomber guy, put out once. Shouts him, <laughs> by the way, for his excellent quality content. Oh, yes. Yep. Thank you for the April Fool's video, you jerk. I thought it was really going to be a 40-minute long analysis of why Skyrim was bad. Nope. No. Just like 38 minutes of credits. <laughs> yeah, the moment that side play, I was like, well, that was, that was something. God damn it, Harris. <laughs> damn you, Harris Bomber guy. Dirty Soy Boy. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, okay. He put out an answer sometime that basically laid out an idea that I found really compelling about the idea of giant robot shows, which is that it's always about the man inside the machine mm-hmm. and the man breaking out of the machine and and the, and the war machine in general, you know, coming out of it, find their humanity again. And then you take a look at Frank's intro. What is the conclusion of the op- opening bit, which is Zero Two bursting out Strelizia as it disintegrates to cup Hero's cheeks? So in some way, that is true. She is that applies here it's her you know being human uh not being caught in the machine for which she was made for but there's an issue i have with this um which i don't think the show is ultimately going to resolve and it ties into its construction this is me going a bit deep on this so bear with me on it this is just her comforting hero by holding his cheeks it's not him reciprocating in any way now Part of me fears that Zero Two, because again, this is all about, you know, the journey and not so much the destination, because I feel fairly confident she will make it through this and be fully human by the end of it, or at least will retain control over her humanity. She won't slide back into this Klaxosaur nature that she's got burning inside her. But that said, the journey, I suspect, is going to be about Hero reminding her of her humanity. Indeed, he has done that in episode six when he, you know, drew his hand over her eyes to take her out of the slump. But you'll note that Zero Two's not returning the favour or helping him out with any of his problems. I mean, his problem is resolved. His was purely a functional one, that he couldn't pilot a Franks, and now that's long since been dealt with. This isn't about two people leaning uh, on each other. It's about one leaning on the other. Totally. Yeah, right now, I absolutely, absolutely agree that she's not, like, fully integrated into a relationship or anything like that with him. She's still 
using it to get what she wants. Yeah. The issue I have with this, and you know, you can read me into some sort of white knighting feminist here if you want. You can call me what the fuck you are, I don't care. Um, is that you can take the lesson from this, you know, this troubled woman is saved by a man. And I don't have an issue with that on its own, but I think it would help if she in turn was helping him through some sort of problem. You know, if they were both holding each other in that opening rather right. than just being all about him. Because then it buys into the problem that this show has in that it has this idea that, you know, that there is this manic pixie dream girl out there that's just right for you in your particular scenario. And they'll just drop it out of nowhere and you'll be you'll be set. You'll have the girl of your dreams because it flat it's a flattering thing for, you know men in general. I mean, I'm not going to deny that I find it a flattering concept that as a perpetual si- perpetual singleton that, you know, there would just be some hot, you know, girl of my dreams that comes out of nowhere and isn't, you know, bothered by how I might look or act, but is attracted to me from that certain special quality I only possess that no one else can see. But it's a, but she can and that's what drives her wild and makes, you know, it, it a given that I'm the guy for her. It's a flattering thing for the audience, or the intended audience rather, of, you know, young heterosexual men so that's problematic at least to me it is sure i think it would be better if you know in some way they were leaning on each other i mean a lot of the show so far has been constructed about what all this means for the boys but not so much for the girls in the various respects i mean we discussed that for example about the boys ex-girls episode where it's about what the guys learn not what the girls learn about being horny so I think this is so deeply rooted in the show's construction, it's not going to be able to course corrects away from this. And I'm just going to say it'll be a disappointment. It won't ruin it, because Lord knows Frank's for one has already fucked up plenty of times as it has. But secondly, it has given us compelling moments like what happened in this episode. So I'm happy to keep watching, but I think that, again, this would have been a missed opportunity if Hero had at least had some sort of complex or problem of his own that wasn't just dealt with a quarter of the way through and was something that Zero Two would help him with as time went on. I think there, I think there could be. I mean, there's still time for that to, to manifest her, her helping him. You know, I'm not so confident that's going to happen. Or each girl helping him. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I think that this point onwards, it's probably going to be more about I would say a zero two's problems, which is fine, and mm-hmm. b, uh, more about um them unraveling the world's mysteries and then coming to a realization on how they want to act. I don't think they're going to fit much more character related stuff for anyone who isn't zero to in there. Possibly of each go maybe, but I think that might be only minor. I don't think otherwise we're going to see much more from Con- this point. Considering how season 1 or the first core of the show was written, uh I don't know. <laughs> it seems like they had uh uh, first act and a way they wanted to end it and then a whole slew of episodes in between where they let people play with characters and stuff it would not shock me if the second half was also like that if the be- the beginning of it was some some cataclysmic event is going to happen to separate the group or something and then we get a lot of character focus one-offs again that'd be neat i'm i'm not hopeful though i think this is the point where we they need to start ramping things up a little bit because we are at the halfway point now it's just an observation i'm going to make that I mean, people have criticized this show for many things about, you know, the fact that it doesn't handle gender normative, sorry, it's too heteronormative, it doesn't handle gender roles well at all. Um, Most of that I do see, even if I don't necessarily Mm -hmm. wholeheartedly agree, I can certainly see where people come from. Uh, For me, speaking as a hetero cis man here, I think it would be more healthy for the show to, you know, not be stuck in this rut where, okay, here's the girl of your dreams and she comes out of nowhere, and it's of no particular attribute that real people can have 
but it flatters you into thinking that you might have something out there, you know, that isn't grounded in personality or looks or a combination thereof that makes you the objects of this girl's desires. I don't know. That's just me throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks here. And that's more a criticism of the show's construction rather than this particular episode. I just feel it came into focus because of the fact that Zero Two is the one in deep, deep shit here. Powerfully driven shit, by the way. Like, this (laughs) is very compelling to watch. But you'll note that, you know, we don't see her trying to help Hero with anything here. They're not, like, leaning on each other. It's her leaning on him. It's her cupping his hands, uh, sorry, his face, because it's not, you know, it's some way there's an artifice there, you know, of it's not really so much about that relationship as it is just being flattering to the show's audience in this, in a sense. This is also tied into the fan service issues I've had. So that's a complex, complicated and circuitous way of saying that I think that this could have been much better, even from a heterosexual perspective, if it was, you know about two people relying on each other rather than, you know, a guy saving a girl from her, you know, downward spiral of destruction. Not to say that that doesn't happen. Not to say that, you know, there aren't relationships out there where it is the guy helping the girl out in a tough spot. But it would have, you could have had it both ways. You could have had your cake and eat, I say. Well, anyway, that is the end of episode 12, the one that thankfully did not sink the show, but also, you know, makes me feel like it's gaslighting me a little bit. I know, I know. The last time we felt this way, we got a pretty big series of letdowns. Yeah, and that's the thing about Frank's, like, the best parts of it so far have been the build-up bits. The, you know, the the way in which it leads to suggest there'll be great character drama coming just around the corner if you sit tight and hope and hold out. Uh, but no, it hasn't done that. <laughs> I'm hoping it does this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be fair... I will give them credit and say that because they did such things as the little bit with, you know, changing the pairings around in the opening, they do have an idea of what they're doing. They're not completely incompetent. I just think that, again, as I've said before, the show needs more focus, more polish, and it could truly have been something special. But at least at the halfway point, I'm now interested to see what happens next game. That's the key thing. I've said in previous occasions on Stream of Thought that I don't have any narrative push, but I do now. I want to see Zero Two recover from this. I want to see her rise and fight back against what's been done to her. I want to see the kids realize how they've been, you know, basically, you know, co-opted into a war from the day one that they never wanted. They've been betrayed, manipulated in every way possible, genetically, emotionally, you name it. I'm now on board with this concept again. So count me in for more Franks. I think I'd never thought I'd say as of late, but well, you know, we're always full of surprises, aren't we? And so to rate this episode, I am going to give it three and a half gazelle, you know, loping claxosaurs out of five. (laughs) It's not quite up to episode five standards, in my opinion. That, to me, felt pretty much spot on from start to finish. But it's the closest it's been to the high of episode five, and for a lot of the same reasons. The mood, the atmosphere, the music, the editing, the direction... Where the script doesn't necessarily, in of itself, feel very spicy or electric, they at least took the time to amplify it and enhance it through those, you know, technical uh, touches. So much kudos then for doing that. And I, for God's sake, just do it consistently. That's all I ask. <laughs> okay, so I loved this episode a lot. Uh, I think it was a huge return to form. Like you, I'm a little anxious now uh last time something so good happened with the show the show didn't really know how to follow it up too well so hopefully you know we will get better 
and they will continue pushing forward. Uh, I wouldn't mind even more dread. That was the thing I loved about this show is the, like we've talked about the music and the shot framing and the directing and, uh, I mean, whoever storyboarded the show did excellent work this episode. Absolutely. I, I would, I would love more atmospheric stuff. I I can't believe the show pulled off a cliffhanger, a good, you know, cliffhanger, uh, after so many one shots in a row. And yeah, I'm super interested like I'm I'm trying not to like expect a lot of things, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm trying not to have a lot of I mean, I've posed a lot of very specific theories, but like I'm trying not to attach myself to any concrete expectations and just kind of try to go where the show takes me and I hope hope it follows this more um this darker, more serious direction here for a while at least. And uh mm-hmm. Yeah, I I'm gonna give this episode uh four point five extra large horns out of five. Nice, nice, nice. I was I was really, really into it. So many good things. There was so much for us to unpack this episode. I feel like it was it was dense. Uh I I I think at least here for for the most part, you know, not it wasn't perfect in this regard, but like it gave us more information without raising a bunch of brand new mysteries and questions. Yeah. Which I totally yeah. appreciate. It felt like we progressed along, you know, the narrative mm-hmm. a little bit. I, in some way, would have actually preferred more, not necessarily in this episode, but more just by this point, because we are at the halfway point now. I still don't know, for example, various things about, like, the origin of the Klaxos. I'm not even talking about whole entity. I'm talking about piecemeal bits of info, but we know nothing about that. We don't know what the experimental purpose of the 13 kids is. Is it revolution? Is it just simply to fuck with them? Who can say? So more concrete details at this point in the show, given its length, would have been very welcome. Mm-hmm. But I will take a win when I can get it, folks. And so yeah. I can safely say that I am still on board for Franks, despite having been piss and vinegar for so much of this season of Stream of Thought. But we're going to keep on with it. I'm hoping they now deliver on it, Finally. We will find out in due course. But for now, uh, just to throw it out there, if you do want to find us on Twitter, you can find me at Shaden1010. I'm also on Curious Cat at CuriousCat.me forward slash Shaden. If you want to ask me about, again, a lot of fine game questions really uh, recently, actually, like who I think the best is in the United Kingdom. Uh, so I'll be throwing that out there. But if you want to ask me about other stuff like <laughs> anime and such, uh, literature, science, politics, I don't know women's uh, fox foxy final right ask me whatever you want i don't mind i'll take any challenge you, you want to throw my way uh what about you herr doctor uh i met the subtle doctor on twitter i will be happy to chat with you all there about franks or anime the souls games hip-hop soccer whatever uh and if you'd like to ask me a question you can also find me at curiouscat.me slash the subtle doctor the inbox has been a little empty as of late, so uh, please ask questions if you if you want answers. Don't just throw me questions to just throw me questions. I I can tell when you're doing that, and then I delete them. Dear oh dear, don't do that, folks. Before we go any further, I'll also throw out that because we are now at the halfway point of this stream of thought, I just wanted to thank everyone who's been sticking around and listening to us this far. Yeah, I hugely appreciate that you take the time to 
you know, listen to us ramble for hours about a 20 minute episode. Um, <laughs> often, often a show that frustrates both us and other people. I mean, we're not the only ones who've got problems with it. And the problems are various, as we've said, some of them we haven't even really discussed at great length. But regardless of, you know, all of that, thank you all very much for taking the time to listen to us go on about Frank's on stream of thought. Um, we will be back next week with episode 13, which if the numbering is anything to go by, we're probably all screwed and it's going to be terrible. <laughs> It'll just be, you know, a PowerPoint and it won't even have anything in it. It'll just have untitled or, you know, slide one <laughs> in Microsoft, in, you know, in Times New Roman font. Just, or maybe, oh no, if it wanted to be really bad, it'd be a clip show. Oh. If it was uh... a clip show next week, I'd probably, I'd, I'd, I'd scream. Trouble Production Screams recap episode. I mean, did we have a clip show in Cardo, if I remember correctly? Um, we, might, we might have done. I believe so. But, like, this is just... I mean, it's going to be narrated by Futoshi. You know it. <laughs> if it is a clip show that's narrated by Futoshi, he'll just talk about all the food he's eaten. Yes, exactly. That's how he's going to bookmark the different uh, different memories and times in his mind, yes. Cooking, cooking with Futoshi, <laughs> you know, as he tries to, you know, make something nice to try and, you know, get um, Kokoro back in his good books. Who could say? But anyway, thank you all again very much for listening, folks. Uh, until next time, as always, embrace each other, everyone, until the ends of the universe. Mwah.